Welcome, everyone, uh, to our uh, library talk. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Stephen Ecker. I'm an assistant professor of Church History and Reformation Studies uh, here at Southeastern. Uh, and along with me today, we're honored and privileged to have uh, Dr. Gordon uh, here from uh, Yale Divinity School. Uh, he also teaches in, uh, in the School of History as well up at Yale. So very grateful to have you here, uh, Dr. You. Gordon. Uh, and as we get started, uh, let me also just say uh, a word of thanks uh, to our librarian, to Jason Fowler, uh, and to one of his assistants, uh, Dougal McLaren, who has helped to set up uh, the event here, has helped to do all of the logistical behind-the-scenes work. So uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for, uh, for giving us this, this unique opportunity. So um, one of the things that we want to do today is uh, we, we sit sort of at an interesting uh, place in history uh, this, of course, being 2017, is the 500th anniversary uh, of the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, we know that uh, all across uh, not only America, but certainly all throughout Europe, uh, people are beginning to think about uh, the Reformation, beginning to engage the ideas that took place 500 years ago and so on. And I think certainly for myself as a historian, one of the things that I'm so thankful for in that is people are beginning to reinvest themselves into a world, Dr. Gordon, that you and I basically try to live in, uh, mm -hmm. for, for in mm -hmm. many respects, to sort of no, dive not back entirely. in. Well, not, <laughs> but uh, to sort of spend time in the 16th century. Yeah. And, uh, and as a part of that, one of the things that I love is this is going to give people a chance to actually start reading the Reformers. And uh, it's going to be a chance for them to not only hear about others describing and telling the, the, the story of these these men and women from the 16th century, but to actually get back into the sources themselves to see what they what they actually wrote. And so, uh, as as exciting and as vigorating as that might be, uh, as well, I think that 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 can potentially come with some pitfalls. Because some comes come with some pitfalls as to how do we how do we read the reformers who live in uh, such a distant place from us uh, in terms of time and a disparate world, really, from our own 21st century. And so what we want to do today is begin to have just sort of an informal discussion on that very question. This is really a question of historical methodology, but how do we actually read the, the Reformers? And, and as we do that, how are we able to help them to sort of speak to our age and us to as well begin to understand their world. So that's a little bit of really what we want to do here. What we'll do is uh, we'll have a little bit of a back and forth dialogue here, uh, Dr. Gordon and myself, uh, and then in just a little bit we're going to open it up. So if you if you have questions, uh, you'll get a chance to uh, to ask us or stump the professor as it were. So, uh, so Dr. Gordon, that in mind, let's uh, let's just think uh, for just a moment here. Uh, given the fact that so many people are going to be reading uh, reading the reformers and so on. Uh, it, it's not just as simple as some might think in terms of reading the, these historic documents. So just begin to, to discuss with us a little bit of the, the, some of the, the concerns or the pitfalls that might come with, with reading something that is 500 years old and, and again, a different, distant place and a, and a very different world than we live in. Oh. Well, first of all, uh, good morning. Um, I have to confess that I feel a little uh, apprehensive about speaking so loudly in a library. I was, uh, I was brought up that you had to sort of whisper, so, uh, but I understand this is, it's fine here. Um, uh, yes, this is, this is uh, you know, 500th anniversary of the 
uh, Reformation. You know, a lot of people are talking about what are what are we actually doing? Is this um, a celebration? Mm. Uh, what actually are we marking? And who is it that we're actually thinking about? And I think it's fair to say that the dominant figure in this year is is Martin Luther. Um, he is, you know, 1517, obviously associated with the 95 Theses. Um, but it also uh, speaks to an enduring uh, sense that the Reformation is really about Luther, that he is that his experience of you know, his, his conversion experience, his coming through teaching the Bible, he was a professor of Bible, uh, to positions such as justification by faith alone, uh, scripture alone, you know, what are referred to as the soli, the, the only, um, uh, or alone. Um, um, but, you know, one of the qu- interesting, interesting questions, and again, I'll try and get to your, uh, your question in, in, a, in a moment, but uh, one of the really interesting uh, questions is, um, you know, who, which Luther are we going to, mm. to remember? Um, you know, there's the traditional view of, of the Reformation, as I say, which is very Luther-centered. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that in Germany, where a lot of this you know, anniversary is, is so important, many Germans say that this, is, this, this Reformation is primarily a German event mm-hmm. and that Luther is at the absolute core. Well, one of the questions we, we might say, well, what about the other significant reformers of this period. Zwingli, uh, Calvin, but not just those ones, but a whole range of other people. And so I think to, to take on the, the question that you're asking uh, about how do, how do we approach this, I think the, the balance is, as, as you've already raised, is to have a sense of the contexts in which they wrote. Mm. Um, and, and that means this, that Almost none of the reformers wrote works that were to be treated in isolation. Almost all of the reformers wrote works that were responding to debates that were unfolding. You know, Zwingli never had the time to, in the 1520s, simply to sit in his study and write you know, a, a summary of doctrine. He was almost always writing in response to, you know, whether it was Catholics or what become known as the Anabaptists. Um, you know, he's responding on infant baptism. He's, he's responding on the notion of the covenant. You know, and then, of course, with Luther, this great debate about the Lord's Supper. You know, what is the nature of the sacrament? Um, so, so, you know, one of the reasons I think it's really important for us to have a sense of, of context is that these people were always living in contexts mm. and writing in contexts. Mm. Uh, Calvin, you know, we talked a bit about this yesterday, you know, he writes probably the most famous kind of compendium of theology for, of Protestant reformers. But as we were, again, talking about yesterday, that was a book that was constantly evolving yeah. and responding to events in his life, responding to his own study, mm. Um, so I think one of the, you know, the balance we want is, is to get, I think, two things. One is that the, the, to learn more about the contexts that these people were writing in, to think about what questions they were answering. So often when we read texts, they will emphasize one theme or one question more than another. And that's, you know, that's partly, we need to know who were they talking to? Who were they in debate with? Who, were they, who else were they reading? Because um, none of them existed in, in, in isolation. They all uh, were in close contact. They read each other's works. Um, they knew what others were writing. Frequently, you know, with, with Calvin, you know, people, and he would send his works, before they were printed, he would send them to people he really trusted, like Heinrich Bullinger in, in Zurich, and ask for feedback. Mm. 
he would give it to his friends, uh, Guillaume Ferrell or Pierre Ferret, and say, you know, read this before it goes into print. And, what do you, and so we have letters back and forth. They were reading each other's works. Well, we kind of need to know about that, that these people existed in, in, in relationships yeah. with, with each other, that their thought was not simply individual, mm. but reflected a kind of community of, of reformers. We need to know the contexts in which they're writing. But what I was saying, and I think you, you made this point uh, very effectively, uh, is that that doesn't mean you have to be an expert on the 16th century before you can read any of this. Yes. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a kind of museum piece or something that's behind glass, and we can, we can only just sort of look at it and not really see. Um, the strength of it and, and, and kind of wonder of it is the ways in which you know, Calvin's Institutes, Luther's works, um, uh, you know, Hubmeier's works, uh, uh, Schwenkfeld, all these people are being read uh, today and, and profitably. But I think we want to have a balance between having a sense of the world in which they wrote this and then to think very carefully about what it is that we bring to their texts uh, when we read them. You know, what is it that shapes our way of of, of hearing their voices. You know, they spoke about, they spoke in a language of the 16th century, and we need to learn that language. But that language still translates into our culture. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so, I mean, there's a couple of themes in there that I, I really think are interesting and would be sort of fun to tease out. Um, you, you talk a, a little bit here about the importance of the community of the reformers. Uh, we oftentimes, uh, especially... Uh, in a Baptistic tradition, we oftentimes sort of cherry-pick specific individual figures. So somebody like Martin Luther, somebody like John Calvin, and so on. And they become sort of the champion pieces for our understanding of the Reformation. Uh, one of the things that I so appreciated about your, your book, uh, your biography of Calvin from 2009, is that's actually not just a book about Calvin. You tell the backstory of these other really interesting figures, men like... Philip Melanchthon, Heinrich Bullinger, um, and so on. So, so talk with us for just a little bit about why is it that our tradition, for instance, looks at and only knows about people like, like a, a Martin Luther as opposed to knowing about an Andreas Karlstadt who was an equally important figure in the 16th century in Wittenberg, and yet we know very little about someone like that. Yeah. I think you know, that's, that's really important. I think there's several reasons behind that. Um, one is, you know, we read the texts that are available to us. Mm. Uh, we read, for the most part, we read Calvin's 1559 Institutes because that's the translation we have of that. We don't, uh, there are now, subsequently, there have been some translations of, of the earlier editions. Uh, we now, we have the 1536 and we have one from the early, 50, a, a, a translation of the French from the early 1540s. But on the whole, we read the texts that are available to us. And what, one of the things we don't really think about is that why do we have those translations? Because certain people in the past decided which reformers would be translated. So we have Calvin, we have Luther, we, you know, on your office wall you have, uh, you have the complete works of, of Luther, at least most of them, the, 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 uh, not, the English version doesn't have all of Luther's works, but it, you know, we have Luther readily available, we have it online, we can, you, can, you can search Calvin's commentaries online, you can, um, but go and look for Philip Melanchthon, <laughs> we have almost nothing. 
Philip Melanchthon in the 16th century was extraordinarily influential. His, his version of the Loca Communis, his, his major theological work, profoundly shaped the way in which Calvin reworked his institutes. Well, now you can get a hold of uh, a translation of uh, the Loca Communis, but for a long time you couldn't. Another good example, name you mentioned, Heinrich Bullinger, who many people may not have heard of. Uh, he was Zwingli's successor in, in Zurich. He was, from, he was Calvin's senior partner. Uh, he uh, he was he had the great reputation. The the refugees first went to Zurich from England. Uh, they came from from France. Calvin was for much of his career in the shadow of Heinrich Bullinger. Well, we don't know about Bullinger anymore because his major work, the decades, was trans was produced, the last English version of it is from the 19th century. Mm. And that translation is actually the 16th century translation, and it's not that easy to read. We don't have a modern edition of, of Heinrich Bullinger's works. They're working on his letters, but those are in Latin and uh, 16th century German. We don't have English translations of them, so we don't read them. Mm. So we read cer certain decisions were made about whose works were going to be available, and that shapes our reading mm. very much. But also there's another side, to the, I think, to this story, and that is that narratives really stick. Uh, and some of the narratives that emerge out of the 16th century, such as Luther's sort of defeat of Karlstadt and Karlstadt fleeing Wittenberg and going, you know, traveling and then ends up ending up amongst the Swiss, Karlstadt as a kind of marginal, radical, even slightly unhinged mm -hmm. figure... Um, which is very much the one of, of, of a Luther-centered narrative, yeah. just as many of, others, of Luther's opponents are cast out as kind of radical figures. These stories, much of which owed to Luther and his supporters himself, have stuck. Um, the story of Calvin and Servetus, the, the story of, of you know, the Anabaptists in Zurich, these, as you know very well, um, these stories are established in the 16th century, and those narratives have remained very yeah. powerful, and they shape the way still that we, we look at the Reformation. Yeah, so it's interesting that the Reformers themselves, in a sense, set the agenda for what's going to be important or unimportant. Well, at least they tried to. They tried to, in yeah. some respects, with the Anabaptists yeah. and so on. But then also, as you rightly point out, people who are even serving in a very, what we would think is a benign thing, just translation work, they're actually serving as editors of the period. They are. They're, they're, just, they're, they're deciding where we go. They decide what, what we read. Unless, you know, you're prepared to learn the languages and go back to the sources. But even there, you may find there's no critical edition. You know, decisions mm -hmm. were made yeah. which reformers were going to be edited critically and which ones were not. So decisions were made about what was important in the Reformation. And a lot of these were done in the 19th century. The Weimar Ausgabe, which is the major Luther work, was done in the 19th century. Um, uh, Zwingli's works were beginning to be edited at the end of the 19th century. You know, they, they, and, and who, you know, if you go to Germany, look at who the Reformation mo you know, monuments are for. Mm -hmm. They're from Luther or from the early part of the 20th century. The, the Reformation wall in, in um, Geneva has Calvin most prominently displayed. Uh, you'll find a little memorial to Zwingli on the Reformation wall, but it's actually a little block. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen oh, it. Yeah. It's almost impossible to yeah. see. You don't even know what it is. Uh, so decisions are, are made yeah. about what we remember. Yeah. So, and those have stayed. So then, so then for a lot of the students that are here and, and even the folks who, who watch this, uh, this discussion online, mm -hmm. 
a lot of them won't have access to the Latin, won't have access sure. to the the the, you know, the the 16th century German. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that these are inaccessible figures or this is an inaccessible time period. But I think in many respects, then it means that we, we must take great care to look at the presentations of these figures and recognize this is a narrative rather than the narrative per se. Would you? Would you? Yeah, I think, and, and I think those of us who work in the field have that responsibility mm -hmm. to convey that there was a broader range. This is not to diminish these major figures. I mean, Calvin's, uh, Luther's towering uh, influences, without doubt. Zwingli's influence is, is, is enormous. You know, in some ways, the founder of the Reformed tradition. Uh, Calvin, you know, the great uh, reformer of the, you know, exiled churches and refugees in, in, in the 16th century. Uh, Melanchthon, the great, in, um, in many ways, the great theologian of, of it's not to diminish these at all, but you know, for those of us who are studying and working on this, it you know, we we need to sort of share a story that there is a broader mm -hmm. cast of characters, yeah. um, and they're not just secondary figures. Mm -hmm. They're in different ways. Um, they are the people who are you know through their preaching, their pastoral work. These are the many of them, and their own writing, um, and these are the people who are you know bringing that message of the leading reformers into a whole variety of communities and contexts. Yeah. And their work uh, is easily uh, overlooked because we don't, we don't have direct access right. to them in, in the same way. And we forget about you know, many of the people who in their own day were incredibly influential. Yeah. It's interesting, too. I mean, you, we, we talked about Karlstadt a minute ago. I mean, he was somebody who was very important to Absolutely. Luther's life yeah. when he first got to Wittenberg, somewhat of a mentor figure yeah. to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't help but to, to think about uh, the, the, the figure from the early part of the 16th century when Luther just comes into Wittenberg mm -hmm. as a young man. And then for many of us here, we would have been exposed, for instance, to the, the, the modern Luther movie, from I think it's back in 2004 uh, mm -hmm. that was uh, that was done and and the figure of Karlstad in that is is sort of like a mad scientist figure who's who's borderline insane yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. which is which is so distant from really the historic truth related to But that's an old narrative that exactly, has been con exactly. which which marginalizes those who were considered radical yeah. uh, and plays on the absolute centrality mm -hmm. of Martin Luther. This is one of the things I try to do in my class with my students Dr. Gordon is to get them to understand that as much as I love my discipline of history it has a cruel bias in the sense that narratives can be painted and they cast a long shadow that are sometimes not the correct historic narrative. They, they can very much be a pejorative narrative, for instance. Uh, even some of the, the figures and the movements uh, from across the, the generations, like the Anabaptists from the Reformation period, uh, the Separatists, the Puritans, sometimes those, those names aren't even given to the groups. They end up being sort of affixed to them as pejoratives. They've just almost been redeemed in some sense uh, in a modern context, just the, the terms themselves. So. Uh, it's fascinating to see the way in which decisions that are made in history, rightly or wrongly, can have a lasting, a lasting impact. Well, think about you know, we, you know, all of us who are involved in teaching, whatever form that takes, uh, that involves a, you know, we have a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, the semester lasts a certain number of weeks. The class lasts a certain number of hours. What are you choosing to teach, and what are you not yeah, choosing to right. teach in that time? Well, you know, when I, you know, anyone who here who's written a book uh, knows that 
they are deciding what's going to go into it and what they don't have they're not able to bring into that. And that what they don't bring in can be a vast amount of material. Mm. But it's just, they've done their research, but you know, it, you have to make decisions about, and historians are always doing that. They're making decisions about the material they have. They're editing it. They're, they're responsible to other people who will edit their work. So we all tell of, you know, versions of this which are based on what we think is, is the, right. the best way. But nevertheless, we're making those decisions. And um, you know whether it's teaching or writing or you know whether you're writing a paper or you're writing a dissertation, we're all as writers making decisions about you know what's what we think is important, what we think is less important, what we don't have space for, uh, and where we want to focus. And and when you read something that I've read, you will you will see things that are missing, um, and you say, well, why doesn't he talk about that? Why didn't he ask this question? Well, that's, you know, because we brought different ap approaches yeah. uh, to the question. And one of the things we have to do as readers and writers is think about what we bring to the text that we read. It's interesting, though. So you've got different narratives that are being sort of told, different stories yeah. related to the same figures. This is also, the Reformation is also an era that has, uh, I think, admittedly, a lot of polarizing figures. Mm. Uh, I mean, Luther is in and of himself, not just his theology and his writings, his personality at times is polarizing. You bring this out in the Calvin biography in relation to Calvin. In one sense, he can be an extremely pastoral figure, and in another sense, he can be an, an angry figure. And so talk to us just for a little bit about how does, how does this shape, how does the various narratives shape the way in which we're to understand polarizing figures? Are they really that polarizing, or is it just we've got different presentations of the figures themselves? Well, you know, in, in the Luther, the one you bring up is a very good example. Incredibly polarizing. I mean, Calvin, likewise, they all were uh, in, in, in various ways. And why? Well, because they were absolutely committed to the truth. Mm. And in the 16th century, in the early modern world, there wasn't this sort of what we you know, see in, in the modern world of a kind of divisible truth. Mm -hmm. Your truth may be different from mine, but they're equally valid. Or you know whatever this you know sort of modern sense of I'm okay you're okay uh, um, and and you know let's let's just stick with that well that of course is a view the reformers couldn't possibly if I'm okay and you're different you're not okay uh, and uh, there's something that needs to be done about that and it's not um, acceptable for you to be preaching in a different church something from what you know I may be right. preaching uh, something has to be done about that because heresy. As, as they understood it, or false doctrine, isn't just bad teaching, it's polluting the community. It infects the whole body of the community. So I gotta do something about that. You know, the, the government you know, the, or the, the church has to, has to respond to that. So there, there, what seems to us to be intransigence often as difficult personalities, and there's no doubt that Luther, I mean, Philip Melanchthon, his, his closest colleague, found Luther almost impossible. Because he had this incredible, as you say, anger. Um, he had this incredible temper. He could lambaste people whom at one point had been very close to him. He saw all his enemies as uh, servants of the devil. I mean, he really yeah. did believe they oh, yeah. were. Um, you know, it wasn't just language. He, you know, they were serving uh, another authority. Yeah. 
Uh, and therefore, they had to be dealt with in the strongest possible ways. So partly we see it as their personalities, and I think it's really interesting for us to learn about their personalities. But partly we need to understand that their perception of truth was pretty indivisible. Hmm. That truth had to be, there was a truth, and it had to be defended at all costs. Um, so it wasn't okay to have people who denied central questions such as the Trinity. or That wasn't just acceptable. It had to be stopped. Right. It had to be dealt with. Um, so that's part of the question we, you know, where we started, that, that you know, we have to get into the mindset of, of these people to begin to understand some of the positions they take. Because otherwise, you just get you know, people saying, well, I don't like Luther very much, or I don't like Calvin very much. He seems kind of nasty. Well, he could be nasty, but there's also a very good reason for why he felt truth had to be defended at, at all costs, right. and that required strong personalities mm -hmm. to take strong action. So you talked about getting sort of into their world, understanding them in their context and so on. I think one of the interesting things is, certainly for our tradition as Baptists uh, here at Southeastern, we've seen where some of the narratives of these figures have actually largely skewed from themselves. Uh, you bring out a point, I think it's, I want to say it's in your biography of Calvin's Institutes where you uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek say uh, Calvin never never saw a tulip, right? And, uh, and uh, so... He never wouldn't have known what exactly, one was. Exactly, he wouldn't have known what a tulip they had, was. They hadn't arrived yet in yeah, Europe. And uh, so, so, so talk with us a little bit about, like there's a, a good example. How are we to understand sort of like the language of Calvinism in a 21st century context, even for us, in a, for, for us here in a, in a Baptistic context, relating back to Calvin himself in the 16th century in Geneva and, and some of the disparate contours between those two things. Yeah. I think one of the things that's, that's, that's difficult for um, all of us is not to take an individual figure like Calvin or to take a particular text and make that an absolute standard of saying this was what Calvin was, or this is what the Reformation was, or this is what the Reformed tradition was as, as it emerged. I think it's, you know, Cal as I've said already, Calvin existed in a, a culture, he existed within a group of people who were developing ideas uh, together, who were thinking about these issues very profoundly. But, you know, as when Calvin dies in 1564, you know, Events overtake him. You get the wars of, of religion in mm -hmm. France, which are devastating for the uh, Protestants. Um, you get all sorts of new questions emerge. You have a you know the 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 Protestants, uh, the Reformed and Lutherans had to respond to the Council of Trent and a reviving Catholic Church. They had to engage with them theologically, which meant that they had, in many ways, to embrace more scholasticism. Right. Um, so it, 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 it evolves, and it takes forms of debates that Calvin couldn't have anticipated. So if you go back to Calvin's Institutes and say, where are the answers to this? Well, he may not have been asking all those, those questions. And some of them emerge later with the Puritans. Some emerge in, you know, with the Reformed scholasticism. They take a whole, some move into pietism in other directions. Um, you know, it's a, it's. I think the thing about Calvin and Calvinism is it's 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 a it's a kind of ongoing conversation that that evolves in historical circumstances, in theological circumstances, and the 17th century world was very different from the one Calvin operated mm -hmm. in. 
and people were formulating questions differently. You have, by the 17th century, uh, great debates about the, the authority of Scripture and the nature of the biblical text. Well, that wasn't an issue that Calvin engaged in very much. You get the emergence of confessions that take very strong positions on the exact nature, for instance, of the, of the order of decrees. In, in, um, that's some, something that you know, Calvin obviously believed in, 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 in the decrees, but he didn't devote a great deal of attention to thinking about the order in which they that's do in the 17th century. Yeah. So on the one hand, um, uh, there is considerable continuity but like any form you know, of, of, the, of the faith, it will evolve to discuss different questions at, at different times relating to a whole series of, of issues. So I see a kind of connect, you know, development of Calvinism, but with, within, or, you know, from, from Calvin and the others with he was involved in. But it nece- you know, the, the questions of the Puritans are... Uh, questions on you know uh, external forms of of assurance these these are issues that that emerge emerge later and become central, which we can 't just go back to calvin 's institutes to say what did he say because he may not always have addressed those yeah I think it's a really important point, um, especially the historians one of the things I like to bring out in my classes and, and is the fact that these figures are not always asking the questions that you and I might want them to ask. Um, For instance, the distinction in the patristic period, I sometimes jovially play a game in my my church history class, heretic or church father. And, (laughs) uh, and, And I sort of cast and frame someone like Athanasius against Apollinarius. And they're, they're doing the same thing in essence, right? They're trying to stamp out Arianism in the empire. They're trying to deal with a very dangerous, heretical position. And really the distinction between the two is a question. It's one question that, that, that Athanasius never gets to. He never asks a question. And so because he never asked the question, like Apollinarius would later ask, relating to how does, how does Jesus' mind, uh, how is that to be understood in terms of its divinity and its humanity? Because Athanasius never asked a question, he never, gets to, he never gets to an answer like Apollinarius does. And so I think this idea of what are you asking and the development of thought is, is very, very yeah. important. It's unfair of us in many instances to force historic figures to ask questions that they never thought of. Okay. Uh, the other thing that you rightly point out that I really appreciate is the fact that I think for, for people who are looking back to the Reformation, I hope that they get a sense of not finding these figures sort of static in time, sitting on a shelf in a, in a glass of formaldehyde. Mm-hmm. Calvin, for instance, or Luther, they, they developed over time their thoughts, their, their views on things. And, and there may have been significant shifts, but there may have also been subtle shifts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I look out and see students here, and I hope that, for instance, those students who come here to the college at Southeastern or to Southeastern Seminary, I hope they're not the same students when they leave here that they came in as. I hope there is a sense of development and a, and a sense of change. And so uh, I think this is a really, really important thing for us to remember about these figures that they, in some respects, they are us. They're growing, they're learning, they're thinking. Um, you actually talk a little bit about this with Calvin uh, in his understanding of knowledge. Mm-hmm. The, the way in which Calvin thinks about knowledge, and maybe you could tease this out as a little bit, is not really a modern understanding of knowledge. It's, it's a different sense of that. So you speak a little bit to, to Calvin on knowledge. Um, well, you know, for, for Calvin, he starts the Institutes with 
the whole discussion of knowledge of God and mm-hmm. of ourselves. And it's very interesting, and people have often thought of this as meaning that Calvin is this very sort of intellectual-based mm-hmm. religion as opposed to someone like Luther, much more a reformer of the heart, or you know, some of the other figures like Karlstadt or you know, Hubmeier or people we've talked about before. And that, but that Calvin is this kind of cold intellectual figure because he, mm-hmm. talk, he begins his work, we're talking about knowledge. Well, what does he mean by knowledge? Well, you know, he doesn't mean just that you, you know, some body of material that you've taken in and you intellectually assent to. It's just simply, okay, I think I get that argument, it's fine. He doesn't mean that at all. He means that to know God and to know ourselves means to know that we are in relationship, that God is in relationship with us, and that that relationship reveals our true selves, who we are. It reveals... Uh, us as you know, desperate sinners in need of redemption. It ultimately re- it it reveals that what God has done for us in in Christ, and that we are you know in that God is you know, that seeks uh, you know redemption, and that we are known in yeah. in Christ. It's it's a knowledge that is the conformity of the whole person to the will of God. And in that conformity, we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. But know ourselves means isn't just sort of, well, I think I know who, who I am. It means grasping our sort of uh, reality. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not something that's separated from the will. It's, in that sense, it's not separated from uh, the whole person. It's not just an activity of the mind. Calvin, you know, Calvin did not think the center of our, you know, this is again an early modern thing, uh, the center of our being was not in our brain, it's in our heart. And so the conversion of the person stems from the heart, not, so this, the idea of knowledge is, 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 is a good case where we, put a, we can put a modern reading onto it, which separates us from what he actually, he, uh, actually meant. But, you know, just back to your other point, about interpretation. A classic example is Luther. Calvin wrote very clearly, he wrote uh, works that could be read. Um, you know, one of the reasons he was so admired is that his works were very uh, understandable. Mm-hmm. Luther, as you know, <laughs> wrote quickly and, and, and his works were printed very quickly, but he wrote on everything here and there. It was like, in some ways, he was sort of putting out fires yeah. everywhere. Uh, he preached enormously. His, unlike Calvin, his sermons were, pre- uh, were printed. So you have, we have Luther on everything, everywhere, mm-hmm. and the, which is you know, fantastic, except that when he dies, his successors claim about five different Luthers mm-hmm. as, to what, as to which was the authentic right. Luther. So they couldn't decide exactly what you know, was the center of his, mm-hmm. his teaching. And if they found it difficult, <laughs> how much more difficult you know, uh, were successive generations going to find? Yeah. And so that was very, you get the, the Lutheran party divides you know, radically and almost viciously between one side who call themselves the true Lutherans, and they call their opponents the Philippists because they follow Philip Melanchthon. Yeah. And both, both sides are kind of tossing grenades at each mm-hmm. other, saying that they claim the tradition of Martin Luther. So it's this notion of, of multiple readings is embedded in the, in the 16th century already. It's fascinating. It's really intriguing the way in which uh, the traditions spin off into, into different, different understandings of the, of the figures themselves. Um, I want to just sort of trace down a thought here. We're talking a little bit about sort of our modern understandings of, of these figures. How do we you know, understand them and their in their original context and so on. I think one of the 
one of the questions that I get the most as a Reformation historian is some of the darker sides of these figures. So, yes, we are getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and, and a lot of these figures will be put up on a pedestal, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of them have sort of dark spots or blots on their life, um, things that they said, things that they did. So, for instance, Luther, at the end of his life, um, you know, writes uh, very in a very strong and harsh manner against the Jews. We have, for instance, Huldrych Zwingli, who executes a number of the, the Anabaptists and supports the execution. You alluded to earlier, Calvin on Michael Servetus and, and so on. How are we, to, how are we be, to begin to think about uh, these figures, what they did in their context, uh, first off, without without projecting our modern sensibilities and understandings on how do we, for instance, how do we think about Luther writing what he did on the Jews without looking at that through the lens of the Holocaust? Um, but at the same time, how do we do that looking at those figures through a biblical lens um, and what really are still decidedly and clearly horrible things to say about, about a people group? I, yeah, this is, this is really difficult. Um, I, I I'm sure you have the same experience talking about, well, for example, uh, Luther and his writings against the Jews mm -hmm. um, is a very difficult subject to teach. It's a very difficult mm -hmm. subject to talk about. Um, for a lot of people, it's, it's deeply offensive. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to, for them even to read the texts. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, I'm sure many people are familiar with them. They, they are, you know, terrible things are, are said. Now, there are ways of looking at that which says, okay, we need to understand this within a biblical framework. Luther believed that he was in the last days. He writes an optimistic work in the, in the 1520s yeah. about that the last days will see the conversion of the Jews. He's very optimistic about what will happen. Um, in, in, in his last years when he writes this uh, uh, on the Jews and their lies, um, he, he's bitterly disappointed that the Reformation, that the end days that he had hoped for had not come. Yeah. Uh, and the, what he sees as the resistance of the Jews to conversion is, is uh, for him, deeply frustrating. And he lashes out to them. And you can also kind of contextualize this in the sense that he lashed out in a, in a, in a sort of similarly vicious way against virtually all his opponents. Mm -hmm. um, there's a very good work... Uh, a book by uh, Mark Edwards called Luther's Last Battles. Mm -hmm. And it just shows that he spread his venom quite broadly. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, but that doesn't, that can't be the totality of the story. Because the truth is, he writes these very dark and, and, and problematic things. Yeah. And we can't, you know, when you say, you know, look back through the Holocaust, we can't ignore the fact that those writings were used by people. That's right later against the Jews, that Martin Luther was this uh, authority for, for people who wanted to abuse that, to twist it. But he offered them plenty of material mm -hmm. to say, look at the great Luther, mm -hmm. what he says. 
and 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 but you know he's not alone in that sense that their anti-semitism is is rife in the 16th century as it was in the late medieval world um you know you could say that luther in maybe in a slightly extreme form expressed what was widely held in the society that is true but still that that doesn't wholly explain the 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 tremendous yeah. authority those ideas had for later generations and the devastating effect that they had yeah. and the very great difficulties that many people, uh, you know, both Jews and non-Jews, find to deal with Martin Luther now. Hmm. Um, you know, I have many students who just find this too hard to read. Yeah. And that's a reality. Uh, Calvin and Servetus. Um, um, I think you can you make a very good point that, that this has uh, stained his his reputation and when I did the book on the institutes it was clear to me that for many hundreds of years after the institutes you know when people mentioned the name Calvin the first thing that came up was Servetus and my own experience in in doing talks where in sort of media so it's one of the, you can be sure that we one of the first questions that will come um, um, and so you know it's what people remember and we can say, quite legitimately, Calvin did not execute Servetus. He participated in the process, but he, he did not have the say as to whether Servetus lived or died. That was the council, the ruling political authority in Geneva. They were not going to trust Calvin to do that. But he was part of this process. He knew that Servetus would, would die. Um, and... Uh, you know, for many, even in his own day, they thought it was unacceptable that for even for the false beliefs of an individual, they should be put to death. And so Calvin became associated with a form of intolerance, yeah. uh, which has, well, still very, it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. When when the the biography came out in two thousand and nine, there was a newspaper review of it. Said, you know, is he still the monster of Geneva? <laughs> you know, that's what people. That's yeah. what that's what it's that's what but we have to engage with those yeah. stories that you know if, if we're going to engage with the reality of the reformers we have to be able to talk about those things yeah. i think that's one of the things that for me in the period um i love in the sense that they are us and we are them to a degree in that they do great things they also do horrible things mm -hmm. uh, just as much as they can do to work and to promote the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel they can also say or tweet or Facebook some of the most ridiculous things that can begin to unhinge uh, or roll back some of the some of the, the good things that they've done, uh, and so that's one of the things that I, I love about them. They really are flesh and blood figures. They're not like you said. They're not just something in a, in a museum to be to be studied and prodded. They, they're they're really just like us, as it were. And you know, Calvin was very clear that he should not be treated as a kind of cult figure. Yeah. He, he says, you know, he was very aware of his deficiencies. We talked about this before. His, he could have a terrible temper. Uh, he was aware that he fell, in his estimation, below the prophetic calling that he believed he had. Um, he was aware of his human weakness. And he would not want, it's one of the reasons why he was buried in an unmarked grave. He did not want to be a figure of veneration. He did not see himself as a saint. He knew he had authority. He knew he had a special calling. But he was also very aware of his human fragility. And often people who have looked to Calvin after that have forgotten mm. you know, his, his very humanness. Yeah, that's fantastic. We've been talking quite a bit here about uh, these figures, reading them in their context, uh, the... Uh, really, the complexity of their world and their writings. Um, what kind of what kind of questions do you all have 
out there uh, for, for Dr. Gordon and myself that, that you're sort of sitting on thinking about now from the, from the basis of this discussion? Go ahead. Um, so this is kind of going along with what you've been talking about. So with the cautions of reading these guys in their context, seeing them and interpreting them in light of their their historical kind of situatedness, um, even if, I think as on a popular level, the impulse is to, to read and try to figure out what is it that we can basically do and, and mm. read about them and drag into the 21st century. and. And there's something, obviously, that we have to be cautious about that, which also something good about that, right? We don't yeah. want to just leave them. No, 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 no. So I guess, uh, can you just tease out a little bit more about maybe your process or your thinking, cautions, but also encouragements you give as far as how to bring, bring them forward yeah. in a responsible way? Sure. That's good. Sure. I think one of the ways to that is... You know, there's a kind of foreignness, to, obviously, to people in the 16th century. They occupied a different world. Uh, you, know, you know, this is the, this is the age of Kepler and Copernicus. You know, their things are 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 their their view of the world. It's, it's the age of you know discovery. You know, also you know, we're on the verge of this. You know, what's what at least used to be sometimes still called the scientific revolution. You know, things are ch they're in a world that's changing. But for us, and certainly for my many of my students, it's, it's, a, it's a foreign shore, you know, it's, it's, it seems like a, a remote world. And how do these people, you know, precisely as you're saying, how do, how do people, how do we relate to this? Well, I think one of the ways that I, I certainly true f for me, is that that distance actually is a great help. Because when I read Luther or Calvin, I'm aware of, you know, the things that, that, that they saw in the world which are, are, are different different from ours, but that allow, that really requires me to step outside of myself, hmm. to question my own assumptions, and I think that that also allows me to hear more clearly what they're saying. And what Calvin, you know, in a way what Calvin would respond to, and, 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 a, and an interesting place where he writes about this is in the, um, his preface to the commentary on, on Micah, uh, where he talks about the prophet Micah, and he says, we need to understand the historical circumstances in which Micah lived. And Calvin was always, you know, interested in, you know, Amos was the kind of peasant prophet, you know, Isaiah was the great sort of learned prophet, you know, Ezekiel, as I talked about a bit yesterday, is the prophet of exile. You know, he's interested in their humanity, their person. Who were these, these people? And what world did they, did they occupy? Um, but at the same time, he says, there is a truth that transcends you know, time. Because what were they committed to? They were committed to the Word of God. Uh, and that is unchanging. The circumstances change. But these, you know, the very fact, for, for Calvin, the truth of, of, of the church through the ages, no matter how, you know, that, that light became almost invisible, was that the gospel continued to be preached. That was, uh, that was unchanging. That message, you know, God... Uh, accommodates to our understanding, but the truth never changes. And so I think, you know, his view would be that we need to learn about Calvin's world, we need to learn about Luther's world, we need to learn about Zwingli's world, we need to learn about, uh, you know, what are often referred to as the radical reformers' world. But, and, and to do that, we need to think about our own assumptions and our own, what we, ex you know, what we take for granted. But at the same time, 
we, we recognize that they are speaking to a truth that, you know, that in, is, is regarded as, as unchanging. And how do we hear that? Um, so they're not museum pieces. But they're at the same time also people of their time. And that balance, I think, is, is actually, for me, quite exciting. You know, to see, to, to, to see both. And, 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 and you know, as, as Stephen was saying, you know, we, we may ask some different questions, but we might, we might also, and maybe they're not asking the same, but we might be surprised by what they have to say mm-hmm. and find that it, it really, I mean, one of the things that people were really, when I did a class on the institutes recently, they were surprised how pastoral the book is. It's really interested in some very basic pastoral questions about assurance, um, uh, how people practice faith in a world that seems hostile. Well, those are issues we can, you know, people can relate to um, very much, and and speaks across time. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, right here in the middle. Okay. <laughs> um, I hope this question isn't too broad, but. Um, Recently, there's been a lot of discussion and thinking about religious liberty uh, in the public square. And in the Baptist tradition, you know, we hold to the idea of soul freedom that the gospel flourishes more in a pluralistic context. However, Calvin and Luther probably wouldn't have agreed a lot with some of the things we, we, we may we, they do. I guess maybe they would have. I don't know. Um, I guess my question for you is, uh, John Calvin's view, or the Reformers' view, maybe broadly speaking, on religious liberty, what are some of the things that you might consider strengths, you know, and some of the things you might consider deficiencies? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to uh, say something? I say go ahead and start. I think this is really going to be interesting to tease out in relation to the magisterial reformers and the, the radical reformers as well. Sure. You sort of look at this from, from two different perspectives. So. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in you know, where are the challenges? Obviously, uh, as we spoke about before, they did not have a broad sense of how truth could be, you know, spread in kind of uh, various various forms. Um, truth, you know, they have this strong emphasis on on the catechism, on preaching. There was, in, to, at least to our eyes, a kind of emphasis on a sort of uniformity of of, of doctrine. So, you know, in what sense is is there um, uh, liberty? Uh, well, I think it exists, for instance, in um, Calvin's emphasis that you know, ultimately faith cannot be coerced, um, that, uh, that it, is, it, it is crucial that each person come to their you know, understanding. Obviously, that needs to be within the framework of, of, of the church. But this is a time when, in, in the Reformation, you're starting to see I mean, what does the Reformation do? It, it creates a plurality of, yeah. of, of, of forms. And these people have to begin to, to live alongside each other. Now, that's not a modern notion of, of liberty, but it's, it's, the, it's the beginnings of it. Yeah. Uh, where you're having to, you don't have to necessarily accept them, but you need to, to as, as, as right, but you're beginning this thing where you have to accept that there is difference. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the problems are, yes, there's still a strong emphasis on uh, a fairly narrow definition of, of orthodoxy and, and what constitutes heresy. That's, you know, that's very much their view, and they would not understand, you know, the, the 
the modern conception of that. But at the same time, there's a profound change which is beginning, uh, which will create, I, I you know, fully believe, the beginnings of you know, what will emerge in the 17th century is notions of religious toleration, uh, notions of a much more uh, increasingly pluralistic forms of, 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 of the faith, because you know, the, what begins in the Reformation in the 17th century breaks into innumerable forms of, of this. So the religious world is changing way beyond the way the, you know, Luther or Calvin could imagine it. But the very act of Reformation itself with its emphasis on interpretation of scripture being removed from the, simply the authority of the church, um, is, is beginning to create a, um, you know, to use a modern term, a slightly more diverse hmm. yeah. sense of, of, of truth, but only in an embryonic way. I don't know if that's what... Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. too. I would also add to that is one of the things that we've actually talked about, uh, Dr. Gordon, is... There are, very, there are much more communal-minded people than we are in the 21st century. We are very, when we think about freedom of conscience, and this is a very modern, individualistic way of thinking. They're not even thinking in the categories of individuality like you and I are. It's not that their understanding of, for instance, justification or something like that is devoid of an individual element. It is. But they're thinking much more communally, both in terms of their theology, but also their understanding of the way in which church and state relate to each other. And you've got to remember here, contextually, this has been going on all the way back to the patristic period, to Augustine. So you're talking about a burden of weight of a thousand years of doing something a particular way. And so even for the Anabaptists, for instance, for like the Swiss Anabaptists that would emerge out from underneath Zwingli uh, and his reform efforts at Zurich, while they end up at the idea of freedom of conscience and separation of church and state and so on, they get there through the process of trying to reform the church internally mm -hmm. as a communal people, and it's only when that fails that they begin to sort of be pushed out and, and they begin to find their ideas on separation of church and state and freedom of conscience and even their views on something like baptism, they find their way there partially driven by the contextual reality of, of being forced outside of that context. Not that that's where they wanted to go. They, in part, were forced outside of that. And so even though, for like the Swiss Anabaptists, they may hold similar positions that we do as Baptists in the 21st century, in some respects they get there a different way rather than, rather than we do. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the... Crucial in this, is, as, as you suggest, is you know where does where in many ways does the Reformation begin? Fifteen, you know, twenty-one died of Worms. Luther stands in front of Charles V and, and says, "It's his conscience mm -hmm. that he, you know, unless you can persuade me on the basis of Scripture uh, that I'm wrong, and I will admit I'm wrong if you can persuade me on the basis of Scripture. But otherwise, my conscience cannot allow." it to be forced by simply ecclesiastical authority or political authority yeah. to believe something he believes is, is, is wrong. Uh, and so that begins a revolution, mm -hmm. which will go down the path, I think, to, well, as, as various people have argued, to the modern world. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. How about in the back here? Yeah. Oh, hello. Yeah, Yes. Can you talk more about some of the hindrances to unity, like, for example, with Buchenhagen 
kind of urging uh, Luther to be more forceful in small comic articles on yeah. the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Like, he, he was a major yeah I mean uh, you're absolutely right I mean you know we can we can in conversation often push it a little in one direction more than the other uh, but for you know for Calvin just to go back to you know Calvin believed passionately in the unity of the visible church and he devoted himself to church unity he his great hope in which he failed was to bring the Reformed or Zwinglian tradition together with the Lutheran. Mm. He thought it could happen, but it couldn't. It certainly couldn't happen while Luther was alive. Luther was not going to uh, accept this. Um, but Cal- I mean, Calvin thought with Melanchthon, there was the possibility that they could make. Um, but there were serious impediments. And one of them is that many people believed that the Reformed and the Lutherans were not saying the same thing about the Lord's Supper, that, that it was a fundamental difference, and that the other, each other were basing it on a false understanding of, of Scripture. So this was you know, a major in, impediment. But there were other impediments that, to this. Uh, you know, for, for instance, what emerges in, in, in England uh, with a Reformation that for many people on the continent doesn't nearly go far enough. <laughs> They still have bishops. They still have the bishops dressed in all their uh, finery. They still have uh, a prayer book that looks a bit like the old Catholic service. Um, so there are different views of what the reform, you know, the Reformation should actually look like. But within that, there were many people. You know, Calvin is just one, but there were many people who were committed to trying to find church unity, who saw in the Reformation the great tragedy of division. Um, and and so, and this continues into the 17th century. Uh, one example is there's a man named John Drury, who, a, a Scot, who travels through, uh, who leaves England and travels through the continent trying to find a basis of church, church unity. But he encounters many of the old problems, hostility between the Lutherans and the, and the Reform. Sometimes that's caught up in, in minor debates. Sometimes it's caught up in political ones. But ultimately there was... Uh, a serious theological divide on questions like the Lord's Supper, which for many people was became a defining of difference. But um, there were no shortage of people who saw in this a tragedy, and Martin Bootser was another one. Yeah. Um, um, there are who, who who really looked for ways to restore the unity that was lost in the 1520s when Luther and Zwingli, and then also the rise of radicalism, split the movement almost from mm-hmm. the beginning. But, you know, thank you, that's, yeah. that's important to, to think about, you know, the, that unity was, for many of them, the, uh, central and essential. Yeah, it's interesting, too. You, you go back to, to Luther, for instance, you just think about the great schism between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Luther would have never seen himself as leaving the church. He, he really sort of thought that the Roman Catholic Church had left him yeah. um, in, his, in his search for truth. Uh, as you point out, you know, Martin Bootser was, was a great reconciler. He was doing all that he could to bring the groups together. And even something like the nature of, of Christ and the Supper that is a key flashpoint of division in the Reformation, going back to Marburg, one of the things to remember is Marburg 
there was agreement on 14 of the 15 major points of discussion at Marburg. So there was a sense of unity to a degree. And you even bring this out, Dr. Gordon, in, uh, in your biography of, of Calvin. Calvin did a great, he even gave up a lot of his position, for instance, on the supper in an attempt to, in an attempt to find unity. Yeah, and you know, in his letters, he was very careful to try and avoid topics that would prove uh, uh, divisive. Um, he cared a lot about this. He, he he followed Martin Bucer, who was his his mentor. He 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 hoped that there could be uh, unity, but you know, at Marburg that you raised, that on that one point of division meant that Zwingli and Luther parted without shaking hands. Yeah. I think, too, as, as you all think in a Baptistic context, this is one of the things that I'd, I'd hope you'd think sort of humbly uh, in relation to other confessional heritages. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, sometimes Baptists historically have really sought to cloister ourselves from other denominations because of these divisions um, and, and to not seek really the unity that, that, that you point out. Uh, yeah, the differences are real, and, and we want to hold to our distinctions theologically and so on, but that doesn't mean we have to hold to those in a divisive way where we're, where we're pushing others away from us rather than seeking unity, even as we hold to our, our convictions ultimately. So, All right, perhaps uh, one last one if there's right here in the front. Um, I, I appreciated your um, point that even historians can have their own bias in their in their writing, and that we just have we all have limited time. Um, could you recommend maybe some resources, primary and secondary, or maybe even speak to how to balance those as someone who can't read a, a lot of church history? Mm. Um, maybe some even less obvious favorites of your own um, that you would recommend. Uh, yeah, I can. I can. You know, the, I, this sort of lots of things that that come to mind, but um, there's a, a, a new book, it's not, it's not out yet, but you know, this is just one that's coming, um, by a man named Alec Ryrie, which is a history of Protestantism. And he's reflecting very much on the, the ways in which, his, his, his last name is R-Y-R-I-E, and his name is Alec. Um, uh, I'm happy to share any references anyone wants to get in, in, in touch. Uh, but he's someone who is thinking very, you know, carefully about not just about the the history of Protestantism, but how we have thought about it, how it has been written, <laughs> what sort of stories have been told yeah. uh, about it. One of the places that it's a big book, but uh, really worth reading, is um, Dermot McCulloch's History of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, again, thinking very much from the the different perspectives on the way in which. The history of Christianity has been written. Um, I mean, I could, I, if you want, I can, I can suggest happily suggest or email you some more specific works. But you know, this is this is a really important question: is how do we write the history that we do, and why do we write the history that we do, and what is it that we particularly bring to the way in which we formulate history? This is not to say history is just uh, you know relativized. As scholars, we seek to read the sources in the best possible way we can. We seek to find the best sources that we can. We seek to compare those sources. It's a rigorous discipline. But we're human. And we have perspectives. And we don't read things in a neutral way. And, there, and things are not written in a neutral way. 
And we have to constantly ask questions about our sources, about the way other people write, and we have to ask questions about ourselves. You know, what are, what are we doing? Um, but I think that's, that's good. But I'm happy to, if you want, you know, I don't want to take up people's time with naming books, but I'm happy to share some things with you who would like to do that. I think that's actually just your, your words there, really. Um, it's really a good stopping point for us um, to think about um, you know, the, the, really the, the heavy task that is here, but also, I mean, this is an important job of, of understanding these, these figures and, and making them applicable to our lives. We don't want to ever walk away thinking that they're so distant from us that, that we, we want to disconnect. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I would, I would challenge all of you, um, the Reformation may not be your area. Uh, Luther or Calvin or Bullinger or Zwingli, they may not be your guy, but uh, um, find someone, find a period. Uh, in, you fall in love with a figure or a movement or a period of time and continue throughout your ministries to invest uh, in those men and those women uh, who have really changed and shaped the very landscape of the faith that you and I are participating in um, you know, over, the, over the ages. So, uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gordon, for your, for your time. Thank you all uh, for coming.